All right, KISS Army, welcome to the KISS FAQ podcast. Thank you for letting us into your head. I hope we don't do any damage. This is a KISS-related podcast by the board for the board. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to episode 22 of the KISS FAQ podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Joining me, Julian, your host, is Alex, bag boy on the FAQ. And welcome back, Mark, for his second. He's back, so he survived the first one. Woo-hoo. Marcus Almighty, thank you for joining me. You're welcome, sir. So Maybe this Mark will last a little bit better than Mark St. John. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Uh, yeah, no, no, 19, no 1984, you know, no year of three guitarists going on here. Just uh, one piece of news that's uh, going to be of interest to everyone listening today, if I manage to get this show edited by the end of the evening, is Ross Radley's Magic, The Kiss Chronicles, 1973 to 83 Kickstarter is live and in Technicolor. So if you want details on that, you can go over to Facebook and type in search for Magic the Kiss Chronicles, 1973 to 83, and find him on Facebook, or you can come over to the FAQ, General Discussion, and we've made a sticky topic right at the top. Um, This is a fantastic book project. We're going to talk to Ross next week on the show, uh, but it is a incredible book project that he's trying to get funded and he needs the kiss army's help um it's photographic it's historic touring not just kiss alive forever rehashed it's recording sessions it's radio appearances it's day-to-day what the band were doing for the the 10 years that really count in their history so 73 to 83 uh it doesn't matter what what era you became a fan in this is the foundation so uh ross is sharing a ton of really incredible photos but like i said we're going to talk to him next week but uh the kickstarter is live as of june the second so uh check it out and you know get behind this guy because it's, it's a great sounding project now to the kiss of a q podcast this week we are going to talk about the years that we think were the most challenging for the band um and challenging can be many different many different things to different people you know so let's jump right into this topic alex boom you're it what's your your primary pick for the, the year that most challenged the band i think the year for me i think gave a challenge there was not a lot of stuff going on really with the band um per se but i have to go with the end of 2000 more like the 2001 time period with um you know you're finishing up the farewell tour i mean i know you hear the interviews now and, and they talk about the um the, the toughness um, and the disagreements that might have been amongst members and stuff. But to be, uh, to be finishing up your farewell tour and then have one of the members of that original lineup um, dispute, you know, for contract negotiations and having to uh, finish up 11, 11 plus shows, I think, um, in Japan and Australia um, and having to be back Eric Singer, which of course is not a, not a crime. Um, I think that had to be challenging for a band trying to kind of go out, go out on top at that point. Did they manage to go out on top without Peter? Because it was kind of the end of his contract. I'm, I'm going to try and look up his contract right now for the date, but, uh, wasn't five years up. He had signed on. So was it kind of fair? He put them over the barrel, not for the first time, not for the last either for that matter. You know, um, five years might have been up. I I think um, 
it was such a handful of shows, you know, and to hear a band, and, and all of them are guilty, um, all four original members of Kiss are guilty of, of saying it and not really meaning it, in my opinion, uh, saying that we, we listen to the fans, we do this for the fans. Um, but, you know, I I mean, I think it would have been nice if they could have finished those last handful of shows together as the original lineup. I think um, I would have allowed my pride, I would have allowed humility in my life to, to take its course, to, to be able to finish out strong. Uh, knowing that Legacy I would have left, and then knowing that, you know, I didn't do the last 11 plus shows because I didn't get as much money as I thought I should have got. Have you heard any recordings from the 2001 leg of the Farewell Tour? Oh, yeah. I've, I had one of the, I think it was like the Tokyo show. Yeah. I had, I had it on this, I had it on this really strange, obscure format called VCD. <laughs> oh, video CDs. Yeah, video CD. I had, I had a copy of the show, and, um, it was excellent. I mean, Eric Singer did a great job. I won't. I won't doubt that in my at all. I really wish that lineup would have been able to to flourish a little bit more. Uh, the Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, Ace Freely, Eric Singer lineup. No doubt in my mind about that. Um, but I think with what was being sold with the Farewell Tour, sadly Peter not being there uh, was a kicker. Uh, definitely that set list was was excellent. Um, and there's tons of videos up on YouTube that exist. Um, from that tour, so they're not hard to find. I love the um, the jam sessions they did, especially in, like the Australian. You, you could find a sweet jam session video, and uh, don't know if it was too much anger or if it was just in jest and stuff. But you know, when you, you hear Ace playing, you know, Rocket Rider and Gene Simmons going, you know, what does the Ace Freely band want to play next? Um, <laughs> add some joke to it. Yeah, it's to me, it, it seemed like they were having fun again all of a sudden. And that might have been the catalyst for them continuing that they come off what and, – and we only ever really get Paul and Gene's word on this, um, the misery of the farewell tour. And they I, I don't really want to parrot any of their negative comments because everyone's heard it a thousand times. you know. And maybe Eric Singer – and suddenly Ace is having fun. Ace is jamming. Ace, those are some of the best, for me, Ace shows um, – with the with Kiss during his second tenure with the band, so yeah. did it did it turn from maybe a, a, a really negative occurrence into a really positive one that all of a sudden five months down the road or what, whatever whenever they finish touring, Paul and Gene are like, oh well, we want to keep going. Hall- hallelujah. Yeah, exactly. Mark, did, did you hear any of these two thousand and one shows, and what's your take on that situation? Well, yeah. I- I've seen uh, quite a few of the uh, shows on YouTube. Um, mainly, I saw a lot of the. But mainly, it was footage from the Japan show. I know they had it in three parts on YouTube there, and uh, I thought when I first saw it the first time, I was like, I thought it was phenomenal. I thought Eric Singer did a great job. They sounded more together from compared to the shows that I saw. Like, I've saw Kiss a few times in makeup. I saw them twice for the actual reunion. Well, one was the reunion tour. One was the Lost Cities tour, and I saw them on Psycho Circus and. When they came to Toronto on Psycho Circus, nah. even on the Lost Cities tour on the reunion, there was already signs of something going on then, much to my surprise, because that was one of the shows, I don't know if anybody ever heard about this, but they were doing the encore, and Ace Freely just fell on his rear end and just collapsed on stage, and Gene walked over, looked at him, and just did one of these things, like, just leave him there kind of thing <laughs> on the floor and walked away. And I was like, oh boy something's going on like you could already tell that something was kind of collapsing at that point 
But, uh, you know, like you said, when the 2001 thing happened and, and Eric Singer came in, it almost seemed like it rejuvenated the band again. It's almost like when Eric Carr joined that time and they said that Eric was playing great when he joined. You know what I mean? It seems like something something like that always seems to re-kickstart him and he seems to have fun again and, and it just seems to go that much smoother for them. I don't know what it is. Maybe he just needs Peter out of his sphere of influence, maybe. Who knows, you know? But uh, it just seemed that when both Eric's were involved, A seemed to play better and I just thought that the bands, you know, were much better for it. I, I, I liked... I seem to enjoy those shows actually better than the uh, than the other shows that I saw. I, I would have loved to have seen Eric Singer with them. Yeah, and and as a drummer, I mean, um, I think it's a fair criticism of of Peter was very trigger happy uh, in the reunion era, very reliant on the triggers to really augment his sound and assist him. So, I mean, it's fair enough that he was using technology for the benefit of the show and to make up for any shortcomings or any issues that he maybe had at the time. But Eric Singer didn't need any of that. I mean, no, not at all. And I mean, it was pretty well known that, I think it was in Paul's book where he said that he had those triggers so sensitive that if he, even if he sneezed, it would have been like a drum solo, yeah. you know? So, I mean, and I mean, if you just even watch him, I, I remember I went to with the Toronto show was my drummer in the band at the time. And he was kind of looking at me going for, you know, he was looking at me and he said afterwards that for how hard Peter was not hitting those drums, they came through thunderously loud, you know, like, and obviously he was using the triggers for the, for mainly the fact that he just didn't seem to have the arm strength anymore, you know, that he had before. Yeah, so, I'm, I'm I, gonna I'm gonna have to dig up those Toronto shows that you've just mentioned now and give those a listen. See if I can pick up anything on those, uh, especially the Psycho Circus one, because that's just fun. All right, let's move on to one of your what you think, Mark, is one of their most challenging years. Well, having a, you know read a lot of books, just like I'm sure all you guys have, and a lot of the Kiss fans have. Uh, my my year that I seem to think would be a difficult one was 79, the Dynasty Tour era, mainly because I was kind of taking it from a band perspective, like if I was within the band, let's say if I was whatever, if I was Paul or whatever, that uh, up to that point, they pretty much were succeeding left, right, and center. You know, they were doing well. Everything was getting better and better and better. They got to Dynasty. You know, they had a huge hit single again. The record did fairly good. But then things started falling apart at that time. If you remember reading C.K. Lent's book and stuff like that, a lot of dates. They they were trying to do two dates, you know, per per city during that tour. And a lot of the times, you know, they had to cancel the second show. I mean, in the C.K. Lent's book, you mentioned that they had like as much as I think they said four four shows blocked out for Madison Square Garden and could only do two. And and the, the open and even the opening uh even the opening thing there it, the opening show he uh they had to cut back from a two to one so that kind of was something that they were probably not used to I think you know having this kind of stuff happening to them you know it was the first showing sort of of things kind of collapsing on them and I think if I was within the band that would have probably been kind of difficult to start swallowing at this point, you know, like, you know, they weren't used to it. I don't think, you know? Yeah. That, that whole tour, I mean, 
if people have seen the the picture of the the proposed itinerary from the inside of the Return of Kiss tour book, uh, that's that's the sky the sky uh, city background cover one that sells for like a thousand bucks. I mean, there were tons of. I mean, I think there was even a fifth date penciled in for Madison Square Garden, and I don't think they sold out either. I'm just looking through my tour archive right now. Um, you know, while a lot of the shows were sellouts. It's the ones that weren't and the cost of being on the road that must have killed them. I mean, imagine this band. Here they were, Super Kiss, in 1978. You know, they, they come off the road for the Alive 2 tour. That is Super Kiss at its height for the USA market. They go to Japan for five, a five-night stand uh, Budokan. Um, you know, presumably all sold out, but I, I don't see that as being a, a major, you know, financial windfall for them any more so than the previous year's tour there with the cost of transportation and all that. Um, but it's still a massive, um, a, a massive stand, you know, five nights in one city. And, th and then they go on a break, you know, and go do the solo albums, go do the Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park movie. And that's pretty much the rest of, 78 and then into 79 where they're actually making a, a new album again you know they're off the road and things change a lot in that time um number one those those kids they'd been targeting have moved on to other things yeah the economy in 78 79 if i recall correctly was not fantastic um they Build a show that costs what two million dollars or something nuts to stage and try and take that out on the road. And yeah, from that point of view, trying to make um, make multiple nights in a, in a city, you, they're only hitting the major markets on this tour. I mean, the, the, they don't go to anywhere that's really tiny, uh, it's only places that they thought, and they even had to cancel the first night of the tour, yeah, you know, Lakeland. You know, the 14th gets canceled. They turn that into a press live rehearsal, you know, and, and do uh, do that. So you're already canceling your first dates. Yeah, at nearly every other city that had multiple dates was canceled. So while they had 100% turnouts, I mean, they've got some pretty good grosses, 130000 per show, 114000 You know, of all the ones I have, they, they gross like $5 bucks. Yeah, but what, well, I mean, if you think about it, but that's the thing. That was the that was the first time this happened to them. Could you imagine what they must have started thinking within their heads? Like, uh oh, is this the beginning of the end? You know what I mean? With this whole kind of thing happening, because that's usually an early sign when things like this start happening that something may not be right. I mean, the solo albums didn't help because from what what, what I read and heard in other sources. You know, they were bickering about a lot of things, you know. I deserve to have more songs because my solo record did better than yours and this and that. So it was already starting within the camp, too. So, I mean, I don't think they really had that issue as predominantly as they had after those solo records happened, right? Oh, totally. And and what a horrible conversation. I would love to have been a fly on the wall with the, at a band meeting where they're trying to decide what song to perform off Peter's album, what song to perform off Gene's. I mean, Gene at least had a couple of, I mean, Burning Up With Fever, That they'd cut that as a Kiss demo. So at least they had that to fall back on. Radioactive is a good rock track. You know, it's not like he was wanting to perform, you know, Always Near You, Nowhere to Run and <laughs> anything like that. I mean, I don't think he's yeah. that nuts. Paul's is pretty straight ahead. I, I still can't believe they did move on, but, you know... Peter, okay, what are we going to do, Peter? Should we do one of your singles, Don't Let Me Down? No, 
No. You mounted? No, no. You know, just that comment. How about I can't stop the No, Peter, you know, it's just, you can just imagine how things start falling apart. He's been off the road. You know, he he's had his, you know, personal demon challenges. All of them have. You know, they've been away from each other doing their own thing. And then they try and get back together. Now they're wearing these pretty god-awful costumes, to be honest. I do not like the Dynasty look whatsoever. <laughs> Gene, Vegas. Gene looks like people have thrown up on him and they've just put plaster of Paris on it. I mean, I, I don't get his costume. Um, Aces, well, it's just, you know, whatever. Paul's, you know, you know it, it's sad. So, yeah, that, that I, I think is a pretty horrible year. But, you know, there's some, also some very good performances on that tour. Um you know, I, I believe Peter was pretty accurate hitting people with drumsticks. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, good for Peter. Yeah, no kidding. Alex, let's move. I, I'm going to move back to you before I dig into one of mine. Okay. Another year. Another, um, another, another, um, another day, another year. Another day, another year. You know, I think um, I think it's had a tough part. I guess that's the what's going on there. It has been tough for them. I got to go with 1984. I guess. Um, you know, he choked with Mark with his name, but. You know, you start out the year with Benny Vincent finishing with him. Um, I don't know. I, I, I can't confirm what was fully going on with Benny Vincent's contracts or not. Did he sign it? Did he not? Uh, and respect the difference and stuff. There's people on the message board who know things that we don't know, I guess. Uh, Sphinx. <laughs> I, haven't seen, I haven't seen that guy in a long time, so maybe I'm not paying attention. Or did I did I ban him? I can't remember. <laughs> That's true. But but you have you have Vinny and, and you, you get rid of Vinny. Uh, Vinny leaves. Vinny quits. Whatever you want to take your pick on on that side of the story. Vinny's gone. Then you get this guitar teacher from California, Mark, who, um, you know, knew what he was doing. But you know, according to Paul, he couldn't play the same solo twice. You you go record the album with the guy. Um, but then you get ready to do the tour, and then comes his ailment, um, the writer syndrome. I don't know how much is true or not. I know there's kind of a little bit of maybe it have been a PR thing, but then you get Bruce Kulick filling in, and then they decide well, we're going to keep Bruce and get rid of Mark. So that that has been somewhat of a challenging year, at least um, contract wise or whatnot, um, and promotion wise. I, mean, I can't even imagine like the merchandise and stuff having to you know keep switching the guy's face on the uh, on the items and stuff. And so I feel that it has been a little bit challenging for the band. I mean, I'm glad they got Bruce Kulick. Um, he did a phenomenal job for the time that he was in. I uh, I still support the idea. I mean, shoot, I'd love to just see a one-off show and just have Bruce come on. You know, Flip do that, that Kiss Cruise, uh, doing that electric set with no makeup. That's the perfect chance to have Bruce come on for like a song or two. Holy smokes, it'd be amazing. Have him come play on Holy Kiss. If you're listening, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> no, I agree with you. Get Bruce to come on and guest with Tommy on Unholy because that would just be incredible for basically Bruce to show Tommy how to really play Unholy properly. I mean, Tommy does an okay job, but Bruce just kills it. So I'd love to see that. Be killer. But I think uh, 84 has a somewhat probably be a challenging year for the band, at least for like the non-makeup era. And of course, you know... Um, there's other, you know, there's other other years too. You know, obviously we know '91 Polly was challenging too with the death of Eric Carr. But I say '84 at least with the revolving uh, guitarist at that time. Yeah, and I, I think '84 80, 
I don't think Vinny ever did sign a contract, so he didn't get fired. He was asked to leave, and then he left anyway. So, uh, I, Mark, I just don't I, – I can't figure out why they ever brought Mark in because it's kind of like you marry someone maybe, and you wake up the next morning, and the makeup's gone, and you're like, oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> I always make that joke up here at school because there's all these pretty girls, and I say, you got to see them without the makeup, and they go, why? I'm like, the biggest fear is waking up and looking to your left and going, who are you? Yeah. You know, know, I don't really want to bag on Mark in that way, but he did not look rock and roll. He did not fit in with the rest of the band's uh, physical appearance and dynamic. He looked completely out of place to me in those pictures, and he always looked uncomfortable. He did because he didn't have. We know he's done a lot of performing in bars, but that's a bar. He didn't do a lot on the social side of real mega stardom to really, you know, be at ease and comfortable, relaxed and dynamic or, or anything. You know, he he just he looked like. Someone who'd wandered in off the street onto a photo shoot. He was thrown in the fire, pretty much. That's what I think happened. I mean, they were desperate for somebody after Vinny. <clears throat> they, he gets recommended by Grover Jackson to Paul Stanley to come in. And, you know, I, I think at that point, they just wanted to continue and move forward and not let too much, you know, you know, don't let the dust settle too much in between records there and just get back out there and, you know, keep rolling and i think they just found him found that this guy could shred and said okay let's get him in there and that was it i think it was just a circumstance of them just wanting to jump back in as quickly as possible and probably not taking as much time as they probably should have to find somebody else oh they totally did not do their due diligence if you think if they come off the road in march 84 end of april they're back in the studio with a new guitarist and a new guitarist that's never released any music i mean i we know he did demos, you know, with Dolly, um, or at least with Donato. Um, I mean, but that's another guy who didn't work out well with the band he went into. I mean, both those Mark St. John and Dave Donato, you got to feel bad for them. One goes into <laughs> Kiss, one goes into Sabbath, and they don't yeah. live happily ever after, you know. Nope. So while he's got that like cross to bear that he's in the studio working with, you know, Gene and. Paul, I mean, that must have been a nightmare situation for someone who's not experienced, who's just doing the best he can, and then to have the stress-related problems that develop, and I don't know enough about Ryder Syndrome, and I I know it was probably used as an excuse at the end that he he was over it, but, you know, they go on tour in England, Um, that's where they started the Animalized Tour with Bruce, subbing uh, for him, and all of a sudden, you've got this guy who who fits the same dynamic, comes from the same place as you. Bruce is New York. Uh, Mark was Southern California. That's left coast, right coast. Um, very different places. Very different people. You know, Bruce is New New York. They can relate to that much better than they can relate to Californian. I mean, their previous guitarists have been from Connecticut, and that hadn't worked out so well. So, you know, might as well go back home, go back to the well. And Bruce fits in, and he looks the part. And number, I guess more importantly, he plays the part that he doesn't detract any attention from Paul and Gene. So, for for better or worse, people calling him Spruce for standing up on stage. Yeah, he came in and he didn't attract any attention. He played the same stuff every night, did it solidly, looked the part, played the part. So, 
And I'll just throw even like interviews. I mean, I know that Easter egg on the Kissology Volume Two with Mark C. John's not a long clip, but man, talk about it. If you haven't seen it, you can YouTube it. He seems super just uncomfortable there and stuff. But you know, if you watch any of the interviews, even with Kiss and the eighties with Bruce, at least Bruce he felt comfortable doing the interviews. He felt at at ease and stuff. At least that's how he presented himself. And well, he had he had more experience. He toured with Michael Bolton, Meatloaf, Meatloaf. Uh, George McRae, he'd been to Europe, some of his earliest stuff, you know, and Andrea True, so, which, Andrea True came with all that drama because of her background, uh, Meatloaf was an insane, um, popularity thing in 78, so, he'd been through that fire, so, was maybe much better, and, and had been the sideman, because in all of those situations, with the exception of Blackjack, you know, he'd been just a hired hand, so it was a role that he had, had done before on a big stage. Blackjack, of course, never really amounted to much. And by the end of that, he's touring as Bolton's guitarist, I believe. Um, so unlike Mark, Bruce was like die cast for that role for Kiss. Yeah, I mean, I think it all boils back down to experience with this. Because, I mean, like you said, he had he had the experience. He had the touring behind him. He had his knowledge of that role, of what to do in that situation. And these are all things that Mark St. John just didn't seem to have any experience in. So, And I think the, the most important thing like that you mentioned, ironically enough, is the fact that this guy is from New York City. And, I mean, he even mentions it as well in the Kissology commentary sections or when you listen to the audio that he said that that was one thing that they really related to because they were from the same area they liked the same kind of music the same kind of things it was easy to hang out because what people seem to forget is after that two hours on stage you got to hang out with these people for 21 other hours or 22 other hours in a bus or somewhere else and if you don't relate to these people how are you going to get along you know yeah so i mean Mark, by the end of that tour, is kind of like, I guess, Paris Hilton's dog being dragged around on tour. Finally get finally gets an opportunity to play. I mean, and, and this is the second part of our episode today is actually, you know, the things in our personal histories that we've really missed. Uh, and this is one of them for me, which is he played in Binghamton, New York, and I was living in Binghamton at the time. Um, I was there in 84. Unfortunately, I wasn't a Kiss fan yet, so I didn't get to, while well, I knew friends who were going to the show, I was like, so what? Uh, you know, I'm going to go listen to my Def Lap and Quiet Riot, screw you. Um, so and if you had had a tape recorder, you would have had that recording, it would have been all three shows that Mark played at. No, because uh, Binghamton's, no? Binghamton's one that circulates, and it's the best. Is it? it's oh, the I'm, be- thinking of, I'm thinking of who? Poughkeepsie is Poughkeepsie. the one that does not, so he plays all of Binghamton, I believe... Uh, yeah, it's all being half of Baltimore. Half of Baltimore. I was in 84. That's where I was living. But I was just a twinkle in my daddy's eye at the moment. Yeah, so that, that that takes care of one of my biggest regrets is, number one, I wasn't into Kiss enough in 1984 to have actually gone to a concert. I didn't go to a concert until 1987, and it wasn't Kiss. Daily Roth. Tesla. Woohoo. So, all right, let's move on to what I think is one of the the band's most challenging years. And I, I think I've mentioned or alluded to this on other episodes before. 1996. This is the ace card. This is the last chance. This is the only thing they have left. I don't think they had a tour in them for Carnival of Souls. I don't think they had much the years after Revenge, which had been a decline. 92, that tour was 
a disaster. 93, they barely played. 94, they went to South America. Um, you know, so at least they played there. 95, they did Australia and Unplugged, and that was something, but you're only playing to about 1,000 people. So they're running out of ideas. And grunge is still around. I mean, obviously, Kurt Cobain is deceased by this time, but Pearl Jam and the musical landscape has totally changed. Um, you've got the emergence of the Internet. You've got new artists, Foo Fighters starting to come out. Um, Alice in Chains is still strong at that point. What does Kiss have? Well, when we listen to Carnival of Souls, to be to be honest, and maybe a lot of it's looking back in hindsight, because I certainly didn't think so at the time. I was like, hell yeah, get out on tour, guys. This album's just gonna ro you know roll if you if you tour on it. I don't think it would have. It would have been like revenge again, maybe even worse. So playing the reunion card is the biggest gamble. Can Ace do it? Ace was in horrible shape in ninety four, ninety five. You see some of the videos, you hear the performances, you know, bless him, but he was in bad shape. He was he was lucky to be vertical and, and not making peace with his maker because, you know, he, he was at the tail end of a, a long period of abuse. Uh, Peter, I, I would say he was in much better shape, um, physically at least. He, he seemed to have gotten past a lot of the, the self-abuse type things. But I don't think emotionally or mentally he was maybe in the best shape of touring with Ace. Uh, we hear some of the stories that it, you know, it wasn't quite the the Partridge family that one would have hoped the bad boys could have been. So could either of them make it through a reunion tour, the first week of a tour, or even the first show? And could Paul and Gene make it through? Because I th I think that they have just as much risk attached to them in 1996. Can they? Put the put it together and hold it together with Ace and Peter and themselves. So there's nothing else to lose. They play that reunion card, and I, I think the challenge that they went through in the early part of '96, getting Ace, Peter, and themselves fit, um, would have been absolutely horrid. And I, I think Peter probably became that MVP that everyone you know really mentions in relation to the reunion early on in that tour and that's when it suddenly works out but the risks that leave lead up to tiger stadium are just astounding I, I don't see any other parallel um throughout their career that they really rolled the dice and if it had failed it would have all been on them peter and ace could have gone back to the clubs quite happily they, they were scraping by um but paul and gene really had nowhere else to go uh, yeah. so 90, 96 is my pick what are you guys thoughts on that well, I mean, I, I have to totally agree with you on that. I mean, it, they kind of uh, sort of alluded to that whole thing on the Kissology and also on that Second Coming documentary that they did about how, you know, there was no question everybody had to go to their gym and work out. Everybody had to go and do things. And, I mean, they filmed they filmed a lot of stuff for that, but they also filmed very selectively, I'm, I'm pretty sure, and showed selectively what was going on because I'm sure a lot of the trouble that was – present at the beginning of this whole process they probably didn't want to show too much of that at the beginning you know they were really trying to make that whole appearance that you know we're back you know what's happened before is old water under the bridge and they were working hard to get themselves back to the band that everybody remembered before so um yeah i think that they they must have had a bit of a hard time at the beginning doing that because like you said the, the video evidence is there if you go and look hard enough on youtube 
there's a pretty uh, cracked out Ace really playing around in clubs quite a bit and uh, a very blonde Peter Chris, you know, playing clubs. And, and, you know, while Peter Chris wasn't too bad, I mean, he was nowhere near in the shape to play a Kiss style show at that point. So, and like Peter admitted himself, by the time they even started the reunion tour, he was already sore and, you know, feeling it from all the, you know, the, the constant rehearsing and the and the working out and, and the, pre- the preparation, which is something that he probably never had to do ever before. And, you know, just to get to that point to play, the, to do that tour. And like you said, it was important for them to do that because, you know, they they were the one taking the risk. That's the thing that people seem to forget when everybody seems seems to bring up the fact about the money. I just say, oh, Ace and Peter, they didn't make as much as them and it's not fair. Well, they didn't have to take the risk as much as Gene and Paul did. Sure, they got the huge end of the coin, but everything was on their shoulders. If it went kaput, you know, they were the ones to blame. They were, they were the ones who were going to get fingered for the, for the failure and that's it. You know, Ace and Peter... They could have just went back to what they were doing, just like you said. Yeah, they they could have walked away, clean cream, clean break. Just sorry, guys, not working out later, uh, and gone. I feel bad for Gene, um, ninety three, ninety four, I guess ninety two for that matter. He finally looks comfortable out of makeup, and all all of the moment he gets comfortable, they put him back in makeup, so he has to become the demon again. So I, I feel bad for him, Paul. I think uh, I think he was happy to be that front man again, to be star child, to put the mask back on. I think that gave him something again that had started to slip away throughout the eighties. Um, but I, I think while Ace and Peter had to do a lot of work, Gene and Paul did as well. They had all moved away from the original music. I, I mean, Kiss had started bringing it back to the seventies style you know, through Hot in the Shade and Revenge as more of the classics started seeping back into the set. They finally started slowing it down a bit, but they had moved away from the original music as well, the sound of it, the dynamics of it. Um, So they all had a lot of work to do, but I I don't think either of them looked like they were ready to drop dead at any single point. Um, You know, thank thank goodness they all made it through, but, but what a dreadful year, what a most challenging year for that band. Yes. Like you mentioned, uh, them Paul working. I've always heard that story. I know it's in um, Behind the Mask, um, which is in the song Parasite, when he was rehearsing for the tour, and Ace tells the story of, like, Paul told him he was playing it wrong. And Ace was like, I wrote the effing song, you know, because uh, Bruce played it a bit more precise, as Ace played it always sloppy. No, no, you don't use the word sloppy. Fluid. He played Fluid. it fluidly. With character. Apparently, Bruce was playing too staccato, apparently. So. Oh, 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 oh okay. Alex, <laughs> we're going to go to your second your, your second choice for dreadful or challenging years. Oh, and, I guess it would be my third choice, then. I've done two. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Two. I, I, I have to do <laughs> Mark, go for your second, Mark. Okay, so my actually, my second one is uh, 82 Creatures. Now, the reason why I picked that was a couple of things. I mean... Obviously, we all don't don't need to go over the whole elder debacle about what happened there. How that elder? totally what's that? <laughs> how that totally crushed whatever audience they had left in America, especially. So, I mean, besides that whole you know rude awakening there, I mean, a couple of things that people I don't know if they realize, but Creatures was supposed to be obviously their big comeback, right? 
so they go out and they break their balls and go and work on this record, you know, to make it their big comeback record. And all the while trying to show that Ace was still in the band. Now, the thing that that I found interesting about this that I read in C.K. Lentz's book was that they needed to keep that illusion happening because of the fact that Ace was still a signature member on the contract that they signed after Dynasty. They had a, don't, don't forget, they got that huge contract where they got like $2 million advance for every record. It was supposedly one of the biggest record contracts at that time. And then, you know, and if they were to expose that Ace was gone, at that point, Polygram could have said, oh, well, sorry, we can renegotiate this now. And they probably would have immediately because they went through that whole court thing with them as well, where they took Polygram to court, right? And, you know... And lost. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. And uh, But at that point, they were trying to keep that very well hidden that Ace was gone because that would have really screwed things up for them. And eventually it did. They did find out and the contract did get renegotiated and they lost a lot of cash that they could have had. And also that 100 City tour that Gene kept hyping all the time in those Creatures of Night uh, promo things that they, they were doing, that never happened. It wasn't no 100 City US tour. I think, what was it? Probably 50 if they were lucky, right? Absolutely, and, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, at that point... That, that was a pretty bad time, I would think. I mean, Vinnie Vincent was in, but we know what kind of a nightmare that turned out to be. So take all those things and take, and take together. I mean, a, a great record contract that now is going to be toasted because the Ace is leaving. Elder that just happened before that. Who uh, totally destroyed her. And base. Now you try to back and kiss. Yeah, I'm looking at Creatures, uh, Bismarck, 3,335 attendance of 8,200. It's got to be probably one of those uh, one of those tours, like they said, the, the Skull and Crossbones tour, where they probably want to really forget about it. I mean, I remember reading in, the, in one of the books where they were, I think it was for the Animalized tour, the promoter or the manager or somebody was trying to get them excited that they had a sellout show. And Gene mentioned just, you know, wow, I'm supposed to get excited now that we have a sellout. Before we were selling out all the time, but now I'm supposed to get excited when we have a sellout show, you know? So, I mean, it shows how the the whole thing kind of changed on them, you know? And you, and you mentioned it at the beginning when you, when you started this topic. Kiss and Sell is an absolute incredible read for this sort of information about the band, you know, the internal uh, touring drama from the business perspective that Chris Lent had is absolutely incredible for the Creatures Through Crazy Nights era. And and for me, Creatures and Crazy Nights are, are siblings um, of just misery. When you look at the attendance figures for these shows, I mean, it starts in 79 with that challenging year that... <laughs> Um, so many of the reviews mentioned, well, Kiss only sold out 16,000 on the last tour. It was 18,000 on the before. It was 20. So all of a sudden, the downward spiral becomes kind of very apparent. And in Creatures, it's just, it must have been so depressing to be out on the road. Number one, it's winter. You, you lose your first date of the tour again due to weather. You're... You've got you've got Vinny and Toe, and I, I don't know how much negativity there was, you know, during the Creatures tour. He certainly seemed to fit in. Um, 
and go a little wild with his violin uh, gear for solos. But, you know, they, they were trying. They had a really cool stage. They built a tank, you know, all the stuff that, you know, kind of sets them against Motley Cruz and the other emerging bands at the time. You know, so they're like, okay, see this old dog? He's learned a new trick. We've got a tank, you know, and it's built to the right scale, not like in Spinal Tap. Um so so they brought a really cool show. They reinvented themselves. They got armor on. You know, it's back to the kind of destroyer. They're they're tough and it's creatures of the night and no one comes. It doesn't res yeah. it doesn't resonate with anyone. Uh very few, you know, good attendances on this tour. I mean they're played to five thousand, four thousand, six thousand. It's just you know, four thousand three hundred and thirty eight and uh well that's Portland, Maine, but so I guess that's a that's a really good turnout there. Uh wasn't Toronto pretty strong, I think, for for that? Uh, I don't have that in my tour archive. I'm sure that's in Kiss Alive Forever, but I refuse to look at that for the answer. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's somewhere over there right now, yeah. so I, I don't have it to hand. So, you know, dread, Dreadful Tour must have been a miserable time because it was such a good album, and they'd really reinvested themselves in hard rock and metal. I mean, they'd, they'd taken, you know... I mean, I I don't really. I'm trying to think of who they were emulating sonically at that time. Um, maybe Judas Priest ish. Yeah. Alex, thoughts? Um, yeah, that's a great. The the creatures tour had you know, like Mark mentioned with the contract and everything. Um, just the stipulations they had to go through. Um, and kind of keeping the the facade. I mean, you've you've even listened to like those that interview I mentioned before that creatures interview. How was it? Night Flight, USA Network interview. Yeah. And even they kind of tried to talk down the ace, you know, saying, you know, oh, he was in a car accident and stuff, and you know, just, things kind of work out. And, you know, we got Vinny. We got Vinny today with us. Vinny's going to, you know, he's going to be there, and he's going to be on stage with us, guys. So go Creatures Kiss. Woo! And so, you know, I feel like it was awkward for them, too. And then, um, they, you know, and it gets... Because of the whole music, you know, kind of the, old, the Dynasty Unmasked Elder, you know, it was like, yeah, our car got the chance to fully shine. So then, of course, you see the the, the, the downward spiral with the makeup. And, and, of course, obviously that leading up to the unmasking a year later. So. All right. I expect I have to do my second choice now for most challenging here. 74. Without a doubt, the beginning. And without Neil Bogart support... Without Bill O'Coin's credit card, without the piss and vinegar of the original Kiss crew, there wouldn't have been a Kiss, likely, because all the challenges that the band went through to just keep that show on the road, um, to not uh, asphyxiate Peter Chris in these small venues, lifting his head up into the gas clouds, um, not burning the places down. I mean, we, we've... We all know of Great White and the fire in the club, but Gene was spitting fire in some places that really were kind of combustible. Um, not being able to get on decent tours, or when you did get on a tour, to be, you know, driving a thousand miles a day. You know, goodness me, what what a challenge any band, you know, would go through under those sorts of circumstances, and and having the makeup, which left them really at a I would say it was disadvantageous at some times for the reception they were given by many audiences with the bands that they were opening for. I mean, come on, Rory Gallagher opening for him. 
Savoy Brown, Manford Mann, Argent. I mean, Argent's probably the most rock of any of those. Um, so they were opening for some bands that are just way, you know, way different. I, they don't really make a good package to me, but, you know, I wasn't exactly listening to much music in 74. Um, so what, what a challenge. And then in the middle of it, to go into a studio in Los Angeles and record a second album and then immediately back out on the road. So it was just more of the same, all the hopping around and the original Kiss crew do a great job really of kind of telling you about what it was like to be on the road with these guys in 74, blowing off hands, uh, you know, exploding drumsticks, M80s being, I mean, that was a big thing in the seventies, but everything that was against them in 74, then they still managed to put out a second album. Neil managed to even get that album heard or, you know, with breaking up with Warner Brothers. And, you know, they make it through the year. So I would say 74 is one of their most challenging years, if not it, because it's at the beginning. And if they hadn't made it through, obviously, you know, things would have been very different. What do you think, what do you think on that? Am I stupid? I, I gotta agree. I mean, you've got to, you know, to get the ball rolling, if you will. Um, you know, they, they had to work their, their tails off to get to where they were. And uh, fully, I mean, the stories you hear behind them making the albums, um, even having to go back and do Kiss in Time in 74 for the first album, and then, like you mentioned, um, doing Hotter Than Hell, the production and stuff. I mean, and you could tell, and you could definitely go with that. It had been a challenging year because when it came time to do a third album, they were kind of drained on material. So they had to, to work hard whenever she came to do Just to Kill in 75. They were just they were drained. So, yeah, well, and I and I think that's a that whole situation though shows how much they actually wanted it though. I mean, many a weaker band maybe would have thrown in the towel having to do that kind of uh, crazy kind of thing that they did. I mean, I remember just reading not long ago how they were saying that their whole touring schedule that they did was like a it was almost like a dartboard thing where you just throw a dart on the map and that's where they would go next on their tour like there was no real rhyme or reason to their touring sequence which probably led to some crazy hellacious drives for not only them but their crew and so you know if they didn't have wanted as badly as they wanted it you know they probably would have you know just said screw this you know i mean a lot of the stuff that they did was without any rhyme or reason but the only thing that they wanted was to be the world's biggest band. And they knew that if they just went ahead and did everything they could to make it happen, that it would come to them. And I guess they proved us all right. Yeah, I mean, routing a tour, our appearance is New Jersey, Missouri, to Ohio. Ohio, yeah. Missouri, Missouri, uh, Illinois. It's just, it's it's ping pong. It's all over the place. It's just absolutely insane, you know. But... But they made it through. I, I think possibly Hotter Than Hell's more of a challenge because of everything that went with that album, with the, the loss of backing of Warner Brothers leaving Casablanca as a really independent. That you know, the the touring is horrible in itself and that just must have been soul destroying for those guys in a station wagon on the road, cheap hotels if they even had them. Um and for the crew, uh just absolutely absolutely horrible. But later on in the year you know, they're still not selling many albums. They're touring more kind of independently now. I mean, they're still doing a lot of shows with like Black, uh, 
not 75, but Blue Oyster Cult and whatnot. But they don't have the backing of a record label that's got anything to really back them with. Then they probably don't see a lot of sales of Hotter Than Hell. So it's like almost an invisible second album. And it's almost fortunate that Neil says in early 75, get back in the studio and do another album. It's probably, yeah, thank you very much, Neil. Let's get off the road for a week. You know, please, Dad. <laughs> you know, we'll behave. We'll, we'll write an anthem for you. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, it, it, it is, it's, it's pretty hellacious. I mean, having been in a few bands that did some touring and, you know, I went to Europe with a, with a band and, and did the whole United States and Canada and stuff like that. It's not as easy as people think. I mean, a lot of people think, you know, being in a band is all, it's all partying and fun and, you know, chicks and cash and this and that. But I mean, with all the stuff that's involved in it as well, there's a lot of traveling. There's a lot of things to prepare for. You know, you have to do, you know, there's radio station interviews. There's, there's a lot of things that you have to do to get a band in the public's eye. And those are the things that people seem to forget. I mean, when a band says, oh, I'm tired, I'm tired. And they say, well, how can these guys be tired? You know, they're out doing what they want and they're having such a great time. But I mean, there's a lot of things involved in it. I mean, try, try doing the jaunt from, you know, North Bay to Thunder Bay in a car. You know, you know, along in, in, in Ontario, that's a long drive. That's like 20, 20 hours, you know, and that's a long drive to do. I mean, can you imagine doing that all the time on a tour? I mean, in the United States, between cities, it's pretty much closer. So that's why you don't see a lot of bands doing a tour in Canada, because the, between the major cities, it's a long haul. You're talking six hours, seven hours, sometimes between cities, you know. So this is all has to be in account when you think about bands doing these tours. I mean, Kiss did, you know, a tour of Canada, they did tours of, you know, the United States, obviously, and the travel gets to you after a while. Yeah, you know, travel sounds great, and so you have to do it every day, right? Yeah, exactly. And can a, a, a real band, can a band party and enjoy and still be able to perform under the stress of travel? I, I Well, maybe that's a young person's game and now mid-40s, uh, I just don't want to even contemplate it. But uh, 2000, was it 2008, Kiss played uh, Harvey's in Tahoe. That was when uh, Paul got into the argument with the, the person in the audience. So I went up to Tahoe for that. So I drive San Francisco to Tahoe. Can't remember how long it took, but it was hours. Next day, they're playing Canocti Harbor, which is like another five-hour drive. And I was exhausted just from doing that little, you know, obviously going up to elevation in Tahoe is one thing. And then back down to Canocti, which was a pretty horrible place, and then back to San Francisco. So that's just like a, a three-, four-day thing, and I'm tired. And yeah. obviously, they're doing private jets by then, but... Uh, in 74, when they would have been doing similar sorts of things, they weren't flying all the time. I mean, we know they flew to Canada in February 74, but they would have been on the road a lot as recounted. And if not them, their tour, their tour personnel were certainly lugging the amps manually from one place to the next. So horrible. I mean, at least it was the 70s and the 70s were cool, but, you know, cannot, cannot have been too much fun. I can't. I I remember when I got uh, I got back. From, I did my two year mission. I had to go grab some stuff. My guitarist that were down in Florida, so I went with a buddy, and we did. We took a four day trip to go down to Florida, and, and this was June though. But 
you know, just like you said, the traveling, the humidity, <laughs> you know, adjusting to that. I mean, I, I could honestly tell you, once I hit, and I'm sorry for anybody if you're offended, once I hit North Carolina, I was wet until I got back to Maryland. I was, it was, the humidity was just uncomfortable and unbearable. So I can only imagine what it was like for those guys traveling um, in the 70s. And um, hopefully that station wagon that Sean Delaney was driving had air conditioning in it. Um, yeah. I would have been a miserable life. So, you know, I definitely relate and feel the struggle of traveling and, and getting to places and, and wanted to just go home. Just think of yeah. how bad their leather smelt. Oh. <laughs> or, yeah, that's another thing too that's kind of interesting about that too is you mentioned the air conditioning and the you know I read a few things and I've actually experienced this myself is that when you're a singer and you're in a vehicle with air conditioning that ain't good for your voice after a while. So you're in a vehicle now with air conditioning you come out of it you get back into the scorching humidity, go into the club, and now you got to sing. And now you start finding that you start suddenly like Kermit the Frog for the first couple of songs. So you have to, you know, get your voice going there. I mean, these are all trials and tribulations that I'm sure they had to go through, and it's not easy, you know. You know, there there are gaps in the touring from Paul getting sick, so you know, and, and having various ailments. So you know, seventy four. What a horrible year, but what a great year for us now. So. Yep. Let's get into the second part of this discussion, the, the, and these are the our bi- our biggest personal, I guess, losses or misses in history. I gave you the one in '84, living in Binghamton and Mark St. John. Um, you know what are what are some of the things that I guess both of you have uh, you you regret missing or that you missed wherever you may have been at the time, Alex. I, I'd say for myself. I got to go with uh, having a, an overprotective mom, though, and so wasn't allowed to go see Kiss until 2009, um, but I would have liked to have, I would have liked to have seen the original lineup play once, um, and even as a kid, and so I think that's like one thing that I missed um, that I wish I could have done, um, that's probably my big regret. Oh, the other... I, I had the money. I could have done it if I wanted to, but I was in school and didn't want to take a chance of uh, missing a couple days of classes. But I could have gone to, like, the uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony, and that would have been kind of cool to, to at least be there again to see the original lineup. Um, you know, even if I was on a nosebleed seat, just to, I don't know, as smooth as it sounds, just to, to be in the same, you know, venue with those four iconic people, those, you know, as a, as a kid growing up. Uh, these guys that I idolized and, and I admired growing up, it would have been really cool to have been there to, to have seen them. That's cool. Mark, what about you? Well, I had a couple that uh, come to mind, but I guess the biggest one for me has got to be July 25th, 1995. That was the time that KISS came for their KISS convention to Toronto. Um, I was, at that point, a pretty full-fledged KISS fan, but I'm trying to remember what it was that made me not go but I'm trying to remember. I think it was. I think it was actually that I was not going to be in town. I think I was going away for a family vacation, which was, of course, the most horrible time I could have went because my the, my bandmates at that time were all huge Kiss fans, and they were all showing me their you know look. I paid my hundred bucks. I got my tickets. You know, they were all going to the Hilton in Toronto where Kiss was going to go, and they were telling me stories about it the whole time when I got back about you know how apparently at this convention you know it was pretty. Close to sold out for I think it's a thousand people is the limit for it, and uh, apparently Gene and Paul 
were just overrun with people going for autographs at their booth. And poor Bruce and Eric had like maybe three people at their table the whole time. Like it was the, the, all the attention was on them too. And those poor guys were like, you know, there were like crickets surrounding them, you know, but apparently the thing that, that I that I was pretty, you know, jealous about missing was they did a really, really long set apparently in the, at the Toronto show there that apparently they did tons and tons and tons of songs and even attempted songs that, you know, they hadn't done for years. And, you know, to be able to be there to see that, you know, and to hear them do these songs would have been awesome. I mean, that's one thing that I'm really kicking myself in the rear end about not being there. I mean, because, I mean, you know, at that point, I don't think age was an issue anymore. There wasn't, you know, the, the, the thing like how Alex was saying about the overprotective parent or something like that. I didn't have that issue at that point. I would have had it before, which was one of my other things that I was kind of regretting because I had a, a friend of mine had a ticket to see Kiss when the asylum came through Toronto, April 8th of 86. And that was a case of the overprotective parent. No, no, you're too young. You can't go to that. And, you know, I would have been able to go and not even have to pay for a ticket. My friend was just willing to. There again, I missed out on that. And I, and I had the opposite thing where I've never seen Kiss out of makeup, you know? So I never got to see them out of makeup. I've only ever seen them since the reunion tour, right? And in makeup. And that's the only time I've ever seen them was in makeup. So that's a regret for me for sure. I've got I've got my copy of Kiss Alive Forever right here and they attempted Burn Bitch Burn. You missed out, Mark. They attempted Burn Bitch Burn. You Damn. missed out. <laughs> of all the classics I missed out on, you know. Classic of classics. So Alex, where you see you had an overprotective parent who uh kept kept you from seeing the band pretty much till two thousand and nine. People think because I, I run the FAQ, I, I've seen them a ton of times. I, I guess I have since I saw them for the first time. Um, I didn't see the band until 1998. My first show was Dodger Stadium. I missed them at 87, Crazy Nights. Um, obviously, I was a fan by then. Um, didn't know anyone who drove. They didn't come to Binghamton that tour. So couldn't get to any of the shows. And to be honest, with how much I hated Crazy Nights, I wasn't that keen. You know, I, I was, you know... Just did not have the opportunity. 88, I moved to Singapore. So for the next couple of years, I'm out of the picture. Um, I come back, um, what was it, 88? I was in England for the summer. I think I missed Donington. Had no interest in going to a festival. 1990, I'm back in America. I'm at Penn State, up, uh, in upstate or in northern Pennsylvania. And again, I don't have, I don't drive at that time, so I can't get to any shows. I don't know anyone. I'm just settling into a uh, university there. Um, so I miss that. 92, I moved back to, uh, I moved back to Scotland, and I've just missed the British tour. So. Um, I had had opportunities to see them, but I didn't have a car or know people who were going. Um, I never got to uh, to see them on the reunion tour because I drank all my uh, pocket money, so couldn't afford tickets. I had tickets to the Finsbury Park gig. I get in my car, get down to the bottom hill, it breaks down. So I, I'm driving from Ross on Wye, which is near the Welsh border. Uh, so no way to get to London to go see the show. So. It's a it's a tale of woe for me, you know. Finally getting to see them at Dodger Stadium was incredible, but.
But, you know, those are my big misses. I, I miss so many opportunities, um, you know, out, out of my out of my hands. You know, you you can't say that I'm, I'm less of a Kiss fan because I didn't see them on the Crazy Night Store. Well, I couldn't drive and couldn't get to the show. So I, when I could get to a show, I finally did. And I think I've seen them 20-something times since 98. Wow. So it's just a shame that it's, you know, post-98 generally, but... I've got to give my mom, you know, I had my mom died when I was seven, and then I had my stepmom, and I call her mom because she raised me on up, and I gotta, I gotta give her credit, so, you know, taking me on. I born as a kid, loving Kiss, and I can honestly tell you, going to see Kiss the first time was like, you know, and I, and I mean, this is no disrespect to anybody religious, you know, it's like a Catholic. I feel like a Catholic boy going to the Vatican, or, or you know, someone of Islam going to Mecca, or Jewish going to Jerusalem. And for myself, being a Kiss fan, finally going to the Kiss concert in two thousand nine was that that uh, that rite of passage, if you will, for me. And I was so stoked, and I got to give my stepmom credit because when I came home and I brought the tour book. You know, here's a woman who didn't like the fact that I had Kiss music or Kiss CDs and stuff, but she looked at that tour book and, and the coolest thing, because she passed away um, about several months later, but she looked at the tour book and she said, you know, I would like to go see them next time they come in town. That looks like it was a lot of fun. And the girl was like, finally, you get it, mom, you get it. So, um, but you know, I think that's, I think for myself, and hopefully you feel the same way, Julian, and hopefully you too, Mark, that when you finally got to, at least to that kiss moment, even though we have those moments of miss that we missed out on, I think it, it actually helped make that first time you got to go one that even more magical because oh, there was yes. so much trial to get to it. Yeah, without without a doubt, having to fly from San Francisco and go to L.A. I mean, go to L.A. L.A. Horror, not one of my favorite places, uh, you know, to go see them. But then, you know, it's the opening night. Well, it's, it wasn't even the opening night. It was the first show of the post alive worldwide. I mean, they had the circus there. They had the smashing pumpkin. It wasn't just a regular tour night. It was a special night, you know, and they did she nothing to lose. And I think something else, um, you know, so they did songs on that tour that they hadn't done or didn't do for the rest of the very abbreviated psycho circus tour, you know, and it was in, in a massive crowd. I mean, 30 something thousand, uh, Dodger stadium. And sure it may have been Dodger stadium, but, you know, what an event it was. So you know, I, I, I'm i not going to, you know, put it up there with any kind of religious experience for me. It was just like the ultimate of cool, of hallelujah, I finally made it to a freaking Kiss concert, you know. Um, you know, I did it. It was like mission accomplished, finally. Mark, what about you? You know. Yeah, well, I mean... To, to answer what uh, Alex was talking about, for me, I, I'll never forget that first time when I saw Kiss, which was in a Sky Dome in Toronto for, I think it was 96, yeah, the reunion tour at Sky Dome, and I've never seen it, and all my friends before were saying, you know, you haven't seen a concert until you've seen Kiss, because I mean, I was always, I saw a lot of Rush shows before that, right, that was my big thing, and they're still my most favorite band is Rush, being a Canadian, obviously, but, uh, uh, but the, when I got there, and after having to sit through Degeneration, which was the opening act that night, um, finally when they started playing that uh, that low rumbling intro and having those searchlights going around and they had the huge inflatables up then, and it was really something. I mean, I was just totally silent the whole time. They probably jawed down on the ground. You know, when they did the whole, you wanted the best, you got the best thing. I mean, I was like, nobody sat down. I don't think for the whole show, I don't think like everybody was on their feet. It was, 
it was incredible. Like it was such a great show, and they played really good. And even my ultra critical drummer friend at the time had to admit that he thought Peter Chris played phenomenally well, and he was expecting him not to because he never thought Peter Chris was any kind of a great drummer. You know, being having Neil Peart as his big idol, right? So, but then that said something about how great that show was. It was absolutely you know, top-notch. I mean, everything went well on that, which is kind of opposite to the shows later that I saw from him. Like I said, that one show at the Lost Cities tour, you know, Ace, you know, completely falls over on his rear end at the end of the show. And the Psycho Circus tour, for me, was not bad, but the 3D effects didn't work hardly at all at our show. I know that Gene was mentioning before that, you know, when it worked, it worked really well. When it didn't, it was really odd. And it was really odd at our show because... You put it on, and it's like, am I supposed to be seeing something coming out? That's what it could have been, but that and that, and that ironically, just really quickly, uh, led, led to my last kind of regret, missed regret. And actually, I remember Julian, you kind of brought this up, was the fact that during that show, when it was done, and I was walking to the subway with my friends, a lot of people were talking about an apparent kiss filming. That was going on the next day and everyone said yeah kiss is filming in hamilton man we gotta go out and check it out and i thought that these people were just you know out of their mind and i didn't know what the hell they were talking about and then lo and behold years later you find out that they were filming the live se sequence for detroit rock city the next day in hamilton and if i would have actually listened to these people and maybe you know did a little bit more research into the matter i would have definitely won it was only like 20 25 minutes drive from where i lived and I would have been able to see another, you know, kiss moment in history that I missed because I just didn't, you know, I just didn't buy it. You know, I mean, here I am at a huge concert, just seeing them that night. And then the next night, apparently, they're filming something in Hamilton. I mean, Hamilton just seems like such a, it's like a small town compared to Toronto, right? So you would never think that kiss is just going to go over there and do something for a film there, you know? So that is a regret that I had. I wish I would have took that more seriously and went. Yeah, well, I regret I regret being invited to be on Family Jewels. <laughs> really? Uh, I, I was one of the people that they did contact, um, and I said, definitely not. I have no interest whatsoever on going on any TV show. Here are some people that you should contact, uh, and, and that was it. Um, I, I don't know if I would have ever made it, you know, whether I was just one of a bunch or at what point in that whole Bob thing. I, I couldn't imagine being Bob. Um, and I... I I I I'd already been on TV at that point for uh, a British show that filmed out in San Francisco, Top Ten Stadium Rock, and once I saw that show and how I came across on TV, it made me not want to ever do anything again like that. But here I am doing podcasting, video podcasting, so I've obviously gotten over that. But that Top Ten Stadium Rock band, uh, Mike's got the video to that. I don't have it anymore, and you know maybe he should throw it up on YouTube. Because it was it was absolutely dreadful. Mike and his mate Julian. Oh God! <laughs> and I'd, I'd ask the guy, "So be nice to me when you edit." And then he wasn't twat. So, uh, <laughs> 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 yeah, I have a face for radio. All right, so that's kind of our episode. That's uh, some of the things that we think were challenges, years that were challenging for the band and some of our own personal, I guess, histories of of sadness and depression. I'm going to go play Alive. 
<laughs> Alex will appear on the next episode with a tear under his eye. Mark. We got 20 more days left, guys. I have the numbers on behind me and stuff. How many more days left of the tour? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so we can get back on the FAQ and see what if the set list changed tonight. And yeah. where, where were they tonight? Berlin? So, yeah, I'm it, pretty sure it is, actually. Berlin tonight, Leipzig tomorrow. Same set that they've been doing. It's a good condensed set for this sort of tour, uh, especially the festival dates. And I, you know, it looks to me like they're spreading out the songs a bit better for Paul. You know, head over to the FAQ discussion boards and argue about how they're not doing the elder. Um, and I haven't heard too many complaints about his singing yet, so that might be a good thing. You know, what I have heard on YouTube, and admittedly, it's on YouTube, uh, which is pretty dreadful quality to begin with, uh, streamed in dreadful quality. It sounded as it's sounded in Vegas. If you're there. It's probably fantastic because you're in an audience, you're in the experience, you're not picking it apart and focusing on it. I, I guess radar goes off when you're looking, how does Paul sound? Because you've already said it to yourself and you've planted the seed of the thought there. How does he sound? Well, when you're actually there, as it was for me in Vegas, you know, it's obviously not 1975, but he's trying. You know, they're, they're still putting on a heck of a show, so hopefully the Germans and the rest of the Europeans are going to get to see them on this tour. Uh, enjoy it, because it, it, it is what it is at this point. Yep. So that, that's our episode on the KISS tour. Done in two minutes. Good job. Awesome. Mark, thank you for joining us again. Alex, again. always good. And uh, I guess early next week we'll talk to Ross about magic. It's going to be exciting. All right, guys, thank you very much, and thank you, everyone, for listening. We will see you next episode. Bye for now. Bye.